giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Seth Godin. How are you, Seth? I'm fabulous. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, Seth, you do so many things. Uh, how do you describe what you do to other people? You know, obviously, your bio needs to be in the eye of the beholder. So, you know, if I'm talking to somebody at a restaurant and they say, are you number 17? I say, yes, I'm number 17. I have my food now. Uh, professionally, I guess I would call myself uh, an entrepreneur, a blogger, and an agent of change. I think that the idea of wanting to make change happen in the world is a new kind of profession uh, that's available to more and more people. And it's one that I'm happy to be able to do for a living. Yeah. I mean, reading your books and, and your blog, you, you do seem almost obsessed with the, this idea of helping other people change things and be brave enough to, to take the risk of doing it. You know, we don't really have enough perspective to understand how connected we are compared to just 100 years ago. I mean, that's great grandparents. That's all it is. But our great grandparents only knew 50 people. Mm. Uh, that The typical person on earth back then didn't travel more than 20 miles in their whole life. That the chances that unless you owned a newspaper, that you were going to be heard and understood by more than than people who could sit at your dining room table is very small. Mm. So this is all brand new. And now the means of production isn't a pin-making machine, as Adam Smith talked about. The means of production is a laptop. Anyone with a laptop has world-class tools, has access to more than a billion people, has the ability to outsource anything that can be outsourced, has the ability to learn anything that can be learned, all because you own a $250 laptop with a little wire hanging out of it. That is unbelievable. And so the question is, 20 years from now or 50 years from now, when you think back to what you did, when doors were all open, Mm. the question is, are you reverting to great-grandparent-type behavior and just focusing on a small circle of people? Or are you taking this magical tool that connects you and using the leverage? Mm. And for me, every day I try to strip away the dependencies of staff and meetings and what I have to do today, and force myself to be in the leverage business instead. Hmm. It's, it's almost like this tool is so powerful, we have a responsibility to use it well. Yeah, I think that's the way I see it. And, um, you know, when I go on vacation, uh, I choose not to disconnect from the things I like to be connected to, because I think it's a privilege. I don't say, this is stuff I have to do. I say, this is stuff I get to do. Mm. What, what are the things that you stay connected to even when you're on vacation? Um, well, you know, the stuff I have to do, I don't do anymore. I don't look at Twitter. I don't look at Facebook. I don't re- read reviews on Amazon. I don't answer trolls. I don't have comments on my blog. I stripped all that stuff away because it wasn't making me happy and it wasn't helping me do better work. Mm. And instead, um, if there's something worth reading, I want to read it. And if there's someone who wants to interact with me in a way that will benefit both of us, I'd like to interact with them. And those two things are things I keep doing, right? So I spend no time on Reddit and watching stupid YouTube videos, but I love encountering a new voice, catching up by reading her last 50 blog posts. I love uh, encountering a human being who I never would have crossed paths with and being able to sit down with them for an intense two-hour conversation with no electronics around us. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm flying in a few weeks to Helsinki uh, to give a talk. And like, I didn't even know people lived in Helsinki. I knew, like, I knew it was a real place, but 
Helsinki. So apparently they're Helsinkians, and I'll get to hear the Helsinki view of the world, and they'll hear mine, and that interaction hopefully will cause some sort of transaction to occur. Mm. So one thing uh, that came to mind while you were talking is I, I, saw, I saw an awesome uh, video from Ira Glass where he talks about um, there's a gap when you first start creating things uh, where your work does not meet the, the level of your taste. And you have this incredibly frustrating period where things you produce don't live up to your hopes for them. And you have to push through that to get to the other side. Uh, did you experience that when you first started writing and blogging and, and starting businesses? Yeah, you know, I mean, Ira uh, certainly captured a viral idea, but I'm not sure I agree with it. Mm. I think that for a lot of creative people, our work never catches up to our taste. Wow. And uh, I've become comfortable with that. I've become comfortable with uh, making the gap a bit smaller over time, but refusing to lower my taste hmm. to say, oh, this is my best work. Therefore, I love it. Mm. Right? Instead, it's, yeah, I'm proud that I made that given what I knew at the time. Uh, but the stuff I truly love, the stuff I truly aspire to make is at a different level. Huh. And that, and that level is likely to keep moving up faster oh, yeah, than your ability. As you encounter more stuff. I mean, you know, let's use a, a, a pretty simple example of ramen. You know, that most people's taste in ramen uh, who are into food is totally different now than it was before the movie Tampopo came out, before Ivan opened his ramen place, before on and on and on. So as people make good work, our taste goes up mm. because we can now imagine a different sort of ideal as to what it means for something to be super. Hmm. Um, and, you know, Bob Dylan's autobiography is filled with half-truths and deception. Um, but if you read it or listen to it, what you will encounter is someone who has truly been through this and who accepts the work that he did but doesn't listen to his past work and doesn't try to recreate his past work on stage. That there's this ever-widening uh, cycle that goes forward where you say, guess what? The, the act of making art, and we can talk about what art is if you want, but the act of making art is the understanding that you will always be slightly dissatisfied. Huh. It's interesting that it's embracing that dissatisfaction feels kind of refreshing because I've, I've, I've been familiar with this, this Ira Glass idea for a while and have struggled mightily at different kinds of arts and always been a little disappointed in the outcome. Um, and so it's, it's kind of uh, liberating to know that that just might be the way it is, and I'm never going to get to the point where I'm like, oh, yeah, there we go. That was it. And then you know you'll never be mediocre, which is a good thing. Because mm. you're mediocre when you are happy with how it comes out, and you, you can't dream about how it would be better? Exactly. Is, is that when you failed to create art? Well, yeah, I think that... Um... Let's understand that the industrial economy pushed out a lot of other things. And what the industrial economy is about is if you own the means of production, if you're the factory owner, your job is to hire the cheapest people and pay them as little as possible to get them to do as fast as work as they can, uh, doing what they did yesterday, but a little cheaper. Mm. And uh, that is how everything in our life is so cheap now. That is how we all became rich is those headphones you're wearing um, are extraordinary for 50 bucks or whatever they cost. Um, but they were made by a group of people who were settling for meeting the standard. And that's different than that stuff we call art, 
which isn't just a painting or a bowl of ramen. It's anything that we seek out, talk about, and that might not work. And it's the key is it might not work. It's being done for the first time. There's a risk. Um, it might not resonate with people. It might not be as good as we hope it will be. When that sort of work gets done, it's like a shining light that attracts our attention, that we, that we can put ourselves in the shoes of the creator of that work, and we can engage with it. Right? No one does that with the next pair of headphones coming out of the Sony factory because mm-hmm. they're just like the last pair of headphones. That's not art anymore. It's production. And what I believe we have the opportunity to do, given that we have created all of these tools that let us interact with each other, is spend part of our day doing work that isn't merely production of a spec. And when we do that art, I think we are being better humans. Hmm. And because we have the ability to share that so widely, it's an amazing opportunity. Correct. You know, so you, you look at something like Wikipedia and you say, what's the business model? And Wikipedia doesn't need a business model because 400 million or whatever it is, people use the work of 5,000 people who are using a piece of software that costs a few hundred thousand dollars a year to maintain. Right, that the leverage is so huge, we no longer have to worry about spec and and production. We have to worry about well, yeah, but did you do something in that article that makes it actually worth reading? That's different. Hmm. So you you talk a lot about art in uh, the Icarus Deception, which I think is your newest book. That's right. I did four books that came out a year ago, and nothing since then, and no plans. Hmm. And, and so you, it, it seems like one of the themes is, is trying to, to, to seek out this art and th- trying to think of your work as art and not just, you know, the next cog in the, on the assembly line. And, and well, also about being brave enough to give it to the world. You know, so if I think, let's get really practical here because people listen to podcasts because they're practical. Um, you know, if I think about an organization like ThoughtBot, I can buy code by the yard, code by the line cheaper than I can get it from Boston. I can post something on Elance and one-tenth the price. Mm -hmm. So why on earth would I do this? Is it because I need to walk down the street to meet you? Is that you're only local? No, that's ridiculous. Um, In fact, the reason it's worth paying extra for is because it's worth more. And the reason it's worth more is because you can hire people to code something that has never been coded before. You can hire people to write a spec that has never been specced before. You can hire people to solve a problem that has never been solved before. And if you want to do that kind of work, as opposed to say, please replicate this online cash register program, you do need artists because there isn't a standard to copy. And so where we look at where value is created, right, whether it's the premium we pay for a car the premium we pay for software coding, the premium we pay for an architect, we are never going to pay a premium for somebody who is going to meet a standardized spec. And the reason is, if I can write it down, I can find someone cheaper than you to do it. That the premium goes to people who can write it down. The premium goes to people who say, I will do this, and I invented it, and it might not work, but let's go. That is a generous act, a brave act, and an act worth paying for. There's an interesting exercise you describe in, in The Icarus Deception where you ask the readers to think about what their big problem is. What's the problem that's preventing you from, from doing your art or from letting you move forward? And it says, you know, you, you, you uh, enumerate the problem, you write it down, and you hand it to someone you trust. 
and you give them five minutes to write down a solution for you. I thought that's such an interesting exercise. Well, so because there's only two outcomes. Outcome number one is they have a solution, in which case you have to do it. And outcome two is they don't have a solution, in which case there probably isn't one. So you should shoot that problem in the head and move on, right? But what we do is we fall in love with our problem. We fall in love with the thing that's holding us back because the resistance, as Steve Pressfield calls it, wants us to. Mm. The resistance wants us to say, well, Knopf will never publish my book, right? Because what a beautiful excuse, a great opportunity to hide. Yeah. And then someone like me shows up and says, well, don't wait for them to publish your book. Take your Word file, print to PDF, email the PDF to 40 people. If they mail it to other people and it spreads, it was good. And you'll have no trouble selling your next book. And if it doesn't spread, well, then your book sucked and you should just write a new one. But sitting around waiting for someone to call you makes no sense. Shoot that problem in the head. Move on to the next thing. Hmm. Does, does this um, bias against problems that might just take more than five minutes to, to solve? Well, let's understand what kind of problem I'm talking about. If we're talking about solving Fermat's last theorem, you know, where it's clear that assiduous focused labor by generations of mathematicians might work, mm. then that's not the kind of problem I'm talking about. The kind of problem I'm talking about is um, my boss won't let me. Uh, Knopf will never publish my work. I don't have enough money to uh, build the dream building that will establish my career. These are problems that we... Uh, hold tight and we love. Mm. They're not problems that are solved by intellectual effort. Uh, they're like protective problems. Correct. Okay. So people listen to podcasts because they're practical. So let's I want to cover one other practical thing from the book, which is um, you talk about uh, be, befriending other artists, people that are creating things as well. And I'm gonna, a quick quote, which is, when you know that you need to meet every two weeks and look a respected artist in the eye and tell her that you did or tell her what you did or didn't make, it will raise your game. I really love that. I, th I think there's maybe not quite enough of that in the world, sort of a support group for people that are doing this, struggling on this together and holding each other accountable. Exactly. And, you know, I <laughs> the more I become focused on this and, you know, Napoleon Hill obviously wrote about it 90 years ago in Think and Grow Rich, but the more I think about this, the more aware I am that other than Alcoholics Anonymous, maybe Weight Watchers, maybe Toastmasters, people are really allergic to putting themselves out there to organizing a regular face-to-face -face meeting. Mm. And it's scary because someone might say, you have no right to do that. They might say, how dare you? They might say, who gave you the privilege? You know, the Krypton courses that I launched uh, at Krypton Community College uh, all involve people starting real-life get-togethers. And the overwhelming response I've gotten is either, A, these courses are great, or B, thank you, who is running one in my neighborhood? And I write back, you should run one. And they, they stop writing to me after that, right? And um, here's the thing. If you're serious about your art, you ought to be serious enough to meet about it. And if you're not serious enough to meet about it, stop whining and go back to working in the assembly line. Yeah. It's funny. When I, I talk to a lot of new Ruby programmers, um, and the thing that I almost always recommend to them is that they start going to the Boston Ruby meetup when they're local. Um, because they have you know, a monthly meeting and also you know, a project night where people get together and work on things. And that support structure is so valuable, especially when you're getting started. Um, yeah. But it's, 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 it struck me that we started off this podcast talking about how 
Um, we have this amazing ability uh, to spread information and to leverage it. And we also have trouble, we're struggling to connect with each other, I think, more than we used to. It seems right. like the actual in-person group has suffered greatly because of this you know, ability to sort of connect at a superficial level. Yeah. So, you know, I, I will share a, a little personal tidbit. I don't drink. I never have. And I hate cocktail parties. I will do almost anything to avoid a cocktail party. Uh, those two things are probably related. But here's what I have discovered is that people who go to cocktail parties a lot can almost never tell you about someone they interacted with at a cocktail party that changed their life for the better, where there was intimacy, where there was growth, where there was learning, where there was the magic of connection. Mm. That we go to cocktail parties to distract ourselves from the fear of actually meeting other people. That we are, what we are doing is, well, I can't call myself lonely because I'm surrounded by all these people. But we surround ourselves by people in this ridiculous setting so that we can stay lonely, so that we can insulate ourselves. It's much, much harder to force yourself to be, ins to allow yourself to be insulated if it's two people face to face for half an hour. Mm -hmm. You just have to connect in that setting. Mm -hmm. And so the internet is a giant cocktail party that you can spend all day on Reddit and Twitter and Tumblr and touch no one right. and learn nothing and make yourself not one bit uncomfortable. And that's a wasted day as far as I'm concerned. Huh. So it's almost like the, the usefulness here is, is the internet as a broadcast medium, but not as, as terms of really connecting with people. Yeah, well, so the way I use it and the way many people who are doing this use it is it starts as broadcast to say, here's my work, what do you think? But 1% of the people who are touched will come back to you and an interaction takes place. But it's not a public interaction, it's you and me. So, you know, my dear friend Bernadette lives in Australia, and we did not meet for the first seven years that we interacted. We didn't even speak on Skype. We interacted by email around ideas for seven years. And then when it was time to put that, that big omnibus book together that I did last year, I asked her to be the editor of it, even though we'd never met. Mm -hmm. And in 30 days, she did it because she was inside my head and I was inside hers. And that sort of connection isn't the connection of anonymous people uh, trolling each other. That is the connection of people who aren't necessarily in the same room, but are, are sharing the same space mm -hmm. and are on the same sort of journey. And the Internet is great at teeing that up. But I think we should not settle for confusing Facebook friends with real friends, right? Real friends are people who will come to your funeral. Facebook friends are people who have permitted you to put a few bits of data in front of them now and then. And, and comments on the blog are not real interaction, not real connection. Not as far as I'm concerned. Some people like Fred Wilson think they're great. Uh, but one of the best things I ever did online seven years ago was turning them off, and I haven't regretted it one day. And, and, and you also said before you don't read Amazon reviews, for example. Right. They were making me really miserable. Here's what I say. I have never once met an author, never once, who said, I read all my one-star reviews and now my writing is much improved. Doesn't work that way. Yeah. Huh. So why bother? Why make yourself miserable? Exactly. So who, who do you go to for feedback then on, on your writing in particular or your ideas in general? Yeah, th that, that's a fascinating question because my work has gotten better. Um, you know, I was a book packager before I was an author, so I've done hundreds of books, literally hundreds of books. And it resonates better. It's better written. It's easier to read. Uh, 
And every once in a while, I meet somebody who's willing to be generous enough to dig deep. But I don't have a process for making sure that I meet that person, right? So, you know, uh, I had an editor at my publishing house who sat me down for half an hour and talked about five pages of one of my books. And it made a huge difference to me, right? But that sort of, here's two paragraphs to tell you whether you did a good job or not in these 200 pages, I find worthless. Right. And, um, you know, if I do a blog post, I can tell it resonates not when people say it to me, but based on what people say to each other, Mm. right? So I did a blog post yesterday called How to Draw an Owl. And I thought it was a fascinating metaphor. But probably 5% of the people I saw talking about it actually thought it was about drawing an owl. (laughs) Yes. I'm like, oh, that one didn't work. Not for you. But it's okay because it worked for those people. And I would like to be judged by what my students tell their students. Mm. That's my measure. And so if a lot of people are stealing my ideas and teaching them to other people now and 100 years from now, I've done a good job. So you you are creating these idea viruses, you hope? I hope, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how, it's amazing how easy it is to be misunderstood um, in general, I guess, but probably particularly through blog posts. Because I've I've written things where I would uh, criticize the, the way someone wrote about something or thought about something. And I would see people responding saying, yeah, that's right. That guy is a jerk. <laughs> well, maybe, but that wasn't the point. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's like particularly when you seem to disagree with someone. Some people are like, yeah, I'm in your camp. I'm with you. He's, he's bad. Right. You know, as Steve Martin says, half the people on earth are below average. Just keep that in mind. Yeah. So um, on your, you had a blog post recently called Pick Three uh, that I really liked. So uh, the rough idea was uh, choose three people in your life that really influence you and that you care about. Um, and give them each three books. And, and in this way, you sort of, you're starting conversations with them and you're creating a shared vocabulary with them and giving you interesting things to talk about. And that really uh, resonated with me in particular because I am um, a very digital person um, and sort of a minimalist in, in terms of possessions generally. And so I am a big, e- I have been an e- a very big ebook person. You know, I'd, I'd much rather have, you know, a hundred books on the Kindle than in on my shelf. But recently... Um, my roommate, who was the opposite, who loves the physical book, gifted me a book. We were talking about something, and he off, I, know I offhandedly mentioned that, a book, and then two days later, it was on my desk with like a little post-it note, like, you know, you should read, you know, tell me what you think when you're done with this. And it was such, it's, it's really struck me. It was like, you know, I had like an emotional reaction, like, wow, that sure. was really nice. And like, then I did read it, and we got to talk about it. And like, it was so powerful that I've started buying physical books again. And I just, I, I, I would pass on that, that, that same recommendation to other people. You know, there, there are some great things, arguments to be made for, you know, ebooks and whatnot, but the ability to gift a book to somebody else is like really kind of an amazing gesture. Yeah. And I, you know, I have a more than a thousand books in my office. One of the dumbest things I ever did was give away 3000 ones when I moved. Um, those books are my old friends. And the fact that there, I can see them on the wall. Every time I look, reminds me of something I want to be reminded of. Mm. So I, you know, I have many Kindles, and uh, it's unbelievable. It's a miracle. But a Kindle has never once reminded me of something I read seven years ago. And that idea, those totems—they are totems—on the wall. I'm afraid they're going to be gone soon, and we're going to miss it. Mm. So, uh, who are your three people? Can I just tell you who my three books are? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, the Gift by Lewis Hyde. He's a local from 
around Boston. Okay. Uh, the War of Art by my friend Steve Pressfield. Oh, that's great. I've read that. Uh, and then uh, I'm going to pick two more because one is by me. <laughs> uh, Lynchpin, which is the best book I ever wrote. And uh, The Republic of Tea by Mel and Patricia Ziegler. And The Republic of Tea oscillates with being out of print and not being out of print. Uh, it's a fascinating series of faxes back and forth between a nascent entrepreneur and the two people who started Banana Republic. And they are difficult with him at first as he plans out this tea business. But over time, as you see the uh, faxes go back and forth, it evolves. And then the second half of the book is actual prose about the, the business. And the reason that book is so fascinating is entrepreneurs are artists and they are underappreciated, and they don't have anyone to talk to. Their spouse doesn't understand them. Their employees don't understand them. Their board doesn't understand them. This is a book about being understood when you're an entrepreneur. And if you've ever grappled with that journey, uh, I think you'll find this book did for you what it did for me, which is it changed everything. For the first time, I figured out that I was not the only person in the world who felt the way I felt. And uh, it got me over the hump. The hump lasted seven years. Seven years, I was almost broke. Um, but that, that book made a huge difference for me. And, and, and what about the, the first book? So The Gift by Lewis Hyde is literature. It's deep. It's nonfiction. It's about the history of gifts, not presents at Christmas, but you know, all the way back to Moses and usury and charging interest, for example. Um, it says in the Bible, you can't charge interest to someone in the tribe. But you can charge interest to a stranger. Why is that? Well, if it's one of the 150 people in your tribe, when you loan them something, it brings you together because you have done something together. If you charge interest, it pushes you apart because there's a transaction involved. I get my money. That's the way it is. No one has a good relationship with their bank because the bank is charging them interest. But you have a good relationship to your mom or your sister who loaned you 50 bucks when you really needed it. Mm -hmm. So it starts there. But then it goes through this long arc covering potlatch, covering the idea of copyright, covering how is it that art must always be a gift? Even if we charge for part of it, right? You know, you, you pay money to own a Beatles album, but it's free to hear it on the radio because the Beatles, by giving you that gift, changed the relationship between you and the music. And it was a really big deal for me to, to, to go on this journey with Lewis so beautifully researched and written that it will change the way you see interactions with people, people who are busy networking their way to the top, people who want to trade a lunch for a favor. Those aren't gifts. And once you understand the asymmetrical nature of a gift, and I view my blog as a gift, right? Um, that's why there's no ads on it. That's why I do nothing to profit from it. Because if I did, it wouldn't be a gift anymore. And it just changes the way you walk in the world, at least for me. And we've, we've probably heard about the War of Art, if you're listening to this, but Steve's work on the resistance uh, really changes the way you talk to other people, really helps you get the support you need to make art. Mm. I love this idea of the gift as a, as a thing given without any expectation of, of return. And it reminds me of this, um, this amazing documentary I saw uh, where there are two uh, gorillas and gorillas can break open a certain kind of nut if you have two of the right kind of rock. And you need a very flat stone and you need a very sharp stone. And there's this female gorilla and she has one of the kind of rock, but she's missing the other one. And she is walking up towards a male 
uh, in like a very submissive way and like kind of like very slowly because he has the rock that she needs. And she's very, very slow, like reaching out, like, can I have this? Is this okay? Can I have this? And, you know, eventually gets it and then very slowly pulls it back. And he allows her to have it and gives this gift, even though there's no reason for him to do it. Like evolutionarily, biologically, there's not, there's not a good reason for him to let her do this, but he does. And like when you look at this, these as our ancestors so far back, there's this idea of gifting things, of just giving something for the good of someone else uh, that is just so powerful. And it is maybe, you know, a, a cornerstone of the fact that we were able to form these societies and, and grow as creatures and, and, and exactly. a world. Exactly right. I want to talk about another a post that I really enjoyed, which was uh, your post about, well, about failing, but that's probably a lot of them. Um, but <laughs> it, there's, there's this, a post where you say, people ask, what if I fail? And the answer to that is, you will. And you say, but after you fail, you'll be one step closer to succeeding. You'll be wiser and stronger, and you almost certainly will be more respected by all of those that are afraid to try. It, it's, it's so, it, it does, it just takes out the, it takes out all the bad. It's like, what about what if my fear comes true? And it's like it's it's going to. Right. So so start thinking about what's going to happen after that. Right. I mean, it was it was inspired by that ridiculous exercise that they say, uh, "What would you do if you could not fail?" Write it down. Right. Well, any geeky guy is going to put down. I'd become the king of the world and blah 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 blah. It's stupid, mm-hmm. right? The question should be, "What would you do if you knew you were going to fail?" Because mm-hmm. you are going to fail. Mm-hmm. So let's start there. Right. Right. Let's. Not, let's not try to inoculate ourselves from the fear of failing. Let's bathe in it. Let's embrace it. Because that's exactly what's going to happen. And if you look at the people we call our heroes in the creative arts, all of them are failures, serial failures, over and over and over again. And the ones who aren't our heroes, the, the one-hit wonders, we call them one-hit wonders because they quit before they had their second hit. Not because they don't have any talent. And that idea that I'm just going to keep failing at this, that's what I do. I fail for a living. People have a lot of trouble with that because in the industrial economy, you're not allowed to fail for, the, for a living. In the industrial economy, you have to do what you did yesterday, but cheaper and faster. Mm. I'm, I'm reading a book that I really like by Scott Adams, which is how to fail at almost everything and still win big. And yes. he, he has the, the same message, which is yes. just, you know, he's, he's not about goals. He's about systems. He's about continually failing at stuff all the time and just, you know, having enough wins here and there to, to make it work. Yeah, he's, he's quite a character. I've known him for a long time. And he is so self-aware and self-referential in the way he writes that it takes a little while to get the hang of it. Mm. But it's really a fascinating style he's got. Yeah, I, I find it really engaging. I like it a lot. Um, so... Two last questions that I want to wrap up with. Uh, you're, you're definitely not a stranger to being interviewed. Uh, what question do you wish people asked you that they don't? Yeah, see, I just let that go a long time ago. This is your interview, not my interview. <laughs> and if I was sitting here spending all my time wishing for you to say something, yeah. it wouldn't be any fun. I think that uh, every the, the magic of podcasts is everyone gets to be Dick Cavett if they want to now. That's really cool because being Dick Cavett is quite an art. And I think that, you know, your research in the arc of what you're talking about makes a lot of sense. Um, I wish, I'll tell you one thing I wish, I wish people who listened to podcasts would start them, start blogs, and ship work. That too often we get stuck in spectator mode, Mm. thinking we've done our important work, getting all our ducks in a row. But as I've written, you know what? 
you already have enough ducks. The question isn't how do you get more ducks in a row? It's what are you going to do with that duck now that you've got it? Mm. And I think people underestimate the value of what they have to share. Uh, because another thing that I'm, I'm, I'm almost always recommending to new programmers is to start a blog. And, and they say, well, yeah, but I'm, I mean, maybe when I know more, when, maybe when I'm not such a beginner. And I'm like, someone knows less than you. Like, right. Write to you for, from three weeks ago. And exactly. pe- there are people that will find that useful. Yes, I think that blogging every day is the cheapest, most effective therapy I know. Because if you know you have to blog tomorrow, you will start talking to yourself constructively because you know someone's going to read it, even if you only have one reader. And that act of honestly describing things with generosity, what a privilege. And, and final question, what do you hope your legacy will be? Well, the, you know, there's the first one, which was be the first person uh, to be healthy and happy and live forever. That would be quite a legacy, but <laughs> that's not going to happen. So we'll go on to number two. Okay. And, and it is, um, I was lucky enough to be in the prime of my career when the industrial age ended and the connection economy took off. And maybe a dozen of us have stood up and spoken consistently about what that means. And if I can be in the same category of the Kevin Kellys of the world and the Amanda Palmers of the world, um, that would be enough for me. Seth, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much for, uh, for doing the Thank you. I'm uh, thrilled to do it. You're doing great work. Thank you. Thanks. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can view them at thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 81. Today's podcast was recorded and produced by Dan Schwartz. Thanks for listening.